hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm. What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. You first had the chance to hear Dr. Melissa Simon in episode 58 when I posted a lecture she gave on the impact on women's health as a result of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But I wanted to bring Dr. Simon back because her areas of research and work in public health cover so many areas that are critically important to and impact on so many women. And because Dr. Simon serves on the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force Recommendation Committee, she has been instrumental in shaping public policy that directly impacts medical care in women. Dr. Simon has been involved in education, research, and public health policy regarding issues such as elder abuse, screening for sexually transmitted infections, cancer treatment disparity, smoking cessation, perinatal depression, it goes on and on. And she has published well over 300 scientific articles, and any one of them would be worthy of an in-depth discussion. But we can't do it all today. I'm going to focus on three areas that impact on women's lives. One, genetic testing to identify women at high risk for ovarian and breast cancer. Two, public health and urinary incontinence. And yes, involuntary loss of urine is a public health issue. And three, the impact of the change in PAP test recommendations. So welcome, Dr. Simon. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get to these specific issues I brought up, you know, in July of 2022, you wrote a really important editorial that appeared in one of the major journals read by OBGYNs all over the world. And the the title of that editorial was Now is Our Time. So what was the theme of that article? What prompted you to write it? Because now is our time, you know, women and women's health, uh, especially in this country, but in this world is understudied, undervalued. Um, yet we comprise half or a little more than half in some countries of the, of the world's population, right? And the United States population. Uh, that article was specific to the United States. And I serve as the advisory committee member of the Office of Research in Women's Health at NIH. And what we were um, tasked with uh, in 2021, Congress uh, mandated that the Office of Research in Women's Health hold a consensus uh, panel, um, basically a conference, to address three main topics that were getting uh, completely not enough traction and attention with respect to women's health. Uh, one was the very egregious disparities in maternal mortality in our country between black and white women and the overall very high maternal mortality rate. We have the highest maternal mortality rate um, amongst all their high income countries on this planet. Which is um, insane second, to think about. I mean, it's insane. All right. Just that's in and of itself. 20 podcasts. If you want right. to continue, happy to do it in the future. <laughs> um, and second was um, chronic conditions, complex chronic conditions um, and even just life 
uh, circumstances. Like every woman, if she lives uh, past uh, around age 50, will experience menopause. So conditions like menopause, chronic conditions uh, that women experience are completely understudied. And therefore, we aren't treating them in the way they deserve. We have not even discovered potential therapies and treatments to help support women if they have chronic conditions or even just through menopause. Look at look at the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl actually for once in um, had a commercial up front about menopause. I was very surprised this year. I I knew that commercial was coming because I know the company behind it. And the company behind it, of course, is about to launch a drug that we won't get into that today. Actually, have a podcast on that. Um, And so but but the point is, is it's people who have a vested interest. It's people that have an agenda. And quite frankly, it's people that might make money for from it as opposed to the greater good of women. And I think one of the things that that we are well aware of that a lot of people are not aware of is even, even research. If you look at the research that was done in many of the commonly used cardiovascular drugs, pulmonary drugs, antibiotics that were launched years and years ago, they were only tested in men. And yet, as we know, women are not little men, yet that data was extrapolated. So, yes, it is our time now. And, and thank you for, for that editorial, because um, it is it, we have to continue to point it out. You know, you and I know it. We live it. We breathe it. But but we have to continue to, to talk about it. So let's move on to the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, which I don't think um, the general population is really aware of what an impact this has on many of the medical decisions that are made every day. So just talk a little bit about what is this task force and and what's their purpose? So the United States Preventive Services Task Force is a voluntary body of experts across the nation in preventive services, uh, in preventive care, including preventive treatments um, as well. And we serve between four to five years um, on the task force. Uh, we are appointed by the AHRQ and we um, have to uh, review all of the evidence for a particular topic that's in the queue. And so things like cancer screening, breast cancer screening, prostate cancer screening, cervical cancer screening, or um, genetics testing, or um, preventive services to uh, 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 prevent postpartum depression, a wide area of topics. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming the number of topics. And I, I think that most people, while they hear phrases like it's been recommended, or the government now says, or my doctor says they are not aware that it's really this group that is very often originating this information. So, I mean, just to oversimplify, the task force makes many, if not most of the recommendations that doctors all over the country follow. I mean, you set these guidelines based on the scientific studies. Um, you're the ones that make us all crazy with changes in pap, pap smear testing, which we're going to get to that in a little bit. Um, but, but before we do, I just, I also want to start by saying that, you know, a lot of doctors, I don't always agree with some of the recommendations of the task force, but I also appreciate how difficult it is to make these recommendations because not only is the science complicated and the science changes, but you are also making these recommendations for a very diverse population, not just racially and culturally, but also in terms of things like access to medical care or the reality of the economic limitations. We wish we had 
unlimited money for preventative services, and that's simply not the case. So it is an overwhelming responsibility. So if I challenge you on a few things, it's not because I don't respect the work that you do. It's the nature of the work that you do. So Right. It's challenging. And, it's and we based on a rigorous review of that existing literature, right? The existing literature. And as you said, that literature can change as our, our as you know, what time goes on. No, and you know, it's interesting because even when we talk about existing literature, we really much very rely on, of course, digital information, the internet, journal articles that are coming out all the time. Books are problematic because if you even look at medical textbooks, um, they are written, they take years to write, and often by the time they go to press, the science has changed. And I have found that even with the books I write, because I'm so careful to give rigorously vetted scientific information and my most recent book hot flash hell um based on a new drug that was just fda approved it's already outdated so it's it's uh, it's a fluid situation it is constantly changing but having said that i do want to talk about cervical cancer screening because the last big change was in 2018 and that's when there were those two really huge changes. The first one was that low-risk women didn't need to have a pap test every year. And the second one was that women over the age of 65 didn't need to have a pap test at all. And we're talking low risk, not people who are at higher risk. So can you travel back to 2018 for a minute before we move forward and talk about what prompted such a big change in pap test recommendations? I think it was the evidence. Uh, Clearly at that time, we were seeing too many pap tests being done uh, and what happens when you you screen too much is there's potential consequences, right? Screening too much may be a bad thing. And that's what most people don't realize, um, that screening is not without potential harm. And so if we screen for pap tests too frequently, then there may be a lot of false positive results, which then uh, lead to biopsies, you know, and these could be large biopsies of the cervix, which are not without pain, but they also have potential consequence for future pregnancies um, and cervical incompetence and, you know, losing a pregnancy early or, or having a preterm birth because of cervical incompetence. So, you know, Overdiagnosing uh, cervical dysplasia or an abnormal something going wrong uh, in the cervix that is not cancer, it could actually lead to a bad thing. And so there was a lot of data at that time um, to suggest that we needed to sp- start pap tests a little bit later. So at age 21 um, and then space them out every three years up until um, age 30 and then between age 30 and 65. Uh, allow for pap tests either every three years or every five years, depending on how the the pap test is being done. Yeah. And of course, acknowledging the fact that a lot of these precancerous changes spontaneously go away without treatment. And as I'm always pointing out to women who are understandably panicked when they get that abnormal pap test result, this is a slow process. This is not like you have an abnormal pap test and 10 minutes later you have invasive cancer so that it made sense in 2018. But but one of the things that became problematic, and I'm wondering if the task force considered this, is that many women believe that a pap test is synonymous with a gynecologic exam. So what happens, and I'm just curious if this was an expected result or an unexpected result. We're not even going to talk about not doing the pap test, but just the fact that suddenly we have 
an enormous population of women that says, I don't need to go to the gynecologist because it's not a pap test year or I don't need a pap test anymore. Was the task force anticipating that and the potential fallout from that happening? Oh, for sure. I was one of the leads on this topic and it was very clear to me and to practicing people on people who practice like myself um, and and trying to dispel the myth that a pap test equals an annual exam and vice versa. Um, We, you know, but the onus was not on on that screening. The onus was not focusing all of that review and that creating that recommendation statement based on the fact that many women just go to the doctor because they think they need a pap test every year. Right. I, we really needed to disentangle that because otherwise we weren't doing our job, right? We, we needed to focus on the science and the evidence of what really happens with HPV infection, which drives almost all of the cervical dysplasia and and cancer, um, and what was happening with respect to over pap testing, so over uh, screening, um, and how to space that out without doing, um, you know, being mindful of the potential harms of over screening. And so, twenty one to sixty five was the optimal age based on those data at that time. Um, and every three years up through um, the entire time with a regular cytology um, or or beyond age 30 to 65 with every five years um, was that that made sense with respect to the 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 um, data at that time. It makes perfect sense from a scientific point of view. You know, I just have to segue for a second. Whenever I hear about over screening and pap test. I love history of medicine stuff. And my mind travels back to Dr. Peppa Nicolo, who I don't know if you're aware of this, but the original studies was done on his wife, Maria Peppa Nicolo, And he, by, you know, historic lore has it that he did a pap test on her every single month for, you know, years to gather his data and, and make this breakthrough in terms of cancer screening. And of course he died relatively young and she lived until she was about 97. So I guess, you know, monthly pap smear is a result in a long life, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> the other part of this though is the pelvic exam, right? When you right. go to a gynecologist, you don't need a pelvic exam every time, right? And it depends on the circumstance. And I, I want to emphasize that the USPSTF, these, these recommendations are for people who are asymptomatic, right? So if somebody's having cervical discharge or vaginal discharge or bleeding or pain uh, or, you know, needing, needing, needing an exam, they need an exam. These recommendations are for people who are just no symptoms, you know, but so this is one area where, and I don't want to get too much into this, but where I have a major issue with this idea, no complaint and no exam does not equal no problem because we know that there are certainly number of circumstances in which either someone doesn't have symptoms or they disregard symptoms because they think it's a normal consequence of aging. And that's how we miss the vulvar cancers and the lichen sclerosis. And quite frankly, even cervical lesions that may or may not have been picked up on a pap test because no one is looking. So we could get into a whole debate about does no complaint really mean no problem? But we'll save that one for another day. Because There's I, not enough evidence. So here's the thing. Well, okay, we, we, we can go on that one too because I know those recommendations were made on four specific things. And, you know, we know I'm, there's no argument. We're not going to find ovarian cancer on a routine exam, but it didn't look at other things that we might find. So 
Moving back to the baptizing, because I know you and I could go off on all kinds of tangents. <laughs> moving back to the baptizing. Um, so I'm sure you're probably aware that in a recent study of over 12 million California women um, diagnosed with cervical cancer, or 12,000, sorry, 12,000 California women diagnosed with cervical cancer over a 10-year period of time, 17% of them were over age 65. And of those over 65, over 70% of them had later stage disease and their death rate was much higher because they hadn't been getting regular pap tests. They hadn't been getting an exam because, of course, you know, not only women, but quite frankly, doctors were like celebrating, especially internists, sorry, and family practice doctors saying, okay, now I've got a hall pass. She's over 65. I don't need to make her take her pants off or put a speculum in or God forbid, look at her vulva or her cervix. So these women just go unexamined. And now we are starting to see the downstream effects of this with the increase in cervical cancer. So Dr. Simon, response to that the people can't see you because this is a podcast but you are shaking your head and rolling your eyes and dying to speak so go ahead because because our recommendation statement very clearly says the women who um we recommend against screening for cervical cancer in women older than 65 who have had regular prior screening and are not otherwise at risk for cervical cancer so women who are having sex and haven't had HPV vaccine um, in their lifetime and haven't had a cervical cancer screen, absolutely should have a cervical cancer screen. I mean, that's without doubt. Okay, let me um, stop you, you right there. Wait, 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 wait. Stop a second. Okay. <laughs> We're getting into it. <laughs> we are getting into it. But no, this is important because I am an advocate of women over the age of 45 getting an HPV vaccine if they're in a new relationship, which is, of course, off-label, off label, but we know that everybody's got HPV. These guys are not wearing a condom because they can't maintain an erection most days anyway. And if they put the condom on, the party's over. And so these women who have thin, vulnerable vaginal and vulvar tissue are getting HPV like crazy. And then they're being told, well, you don't need a pap test. And I would bet that you're in agreement with what I'm saying right now. But the recommendations don't state that. They don't say. And if your patient is a woman who is having sex with a guy who probably has HPV because they all do and he won't wear a condom, be sure and do a pap test. Yeah. So the <laughs> clinical, I mean, I'm with you. I'm walking with you. And again, this it is hard to make recommendations for the United States of America, right, at the country right. level with the given data that you have at hand that uh, that actually passed the, the data test. Like we don't look at all studies. We only look at the what we call the, the highest level evidence, the best evidence. Right. And those studies are very controlled, very rigorous, but don't often include all the populations you would want yeah. to have included. Uh, so but that's such an important point. I want to go back a little bit because when we talk about high level studies and and you and I, it makes us want to tear our hair out when we hear people quoting studies that are, quite frankly, you know, not real studies. There's 10 people that lasted four weeks and it's a bunch of, you know, white women in a room. And, and those studies are not what you or I would consider to be high level studies. So that's no small point. Yeah. And, and again, so in each recommendation statement that the USPSTF makes, there is a clinical considerations uh, section. And I 
urge all clinicians and and people themselves to look at those clinical um, exceptions and considerations because there's a whole section in there on women older than age 65 um, and and really we talk about the other guidelines ACS ASCCP ASCP um, and and what that what it means to have had um, a adequate screening yeah. uh, prior to age 65. Um, and so if you haven't had that adequate screening and you are at risk, th- meaning you're having sex. We all know women over the age of 65 don't have sex, right? Because <laughs> their doctors certainly never ask about it. Yeah, don't get us started. Um, so, so again, um, there are clinical considerations in every recommendation statement, and these are part of the nuances and, and, and the challenges when it comes to actually implementing the recommendation statements at the ground floor level with every single patient, because there are nuances to this. There's no cookie cutter, and you have to remember that these recommendations are for people who are not symptomatic at all. Yeah, and that's so important. And I know that um, there are new recommendations coming out. There's going to be an update. I don't know if you can share that or if you're still in progress, but I think it's important for everyone to understand that, you know, as the science changes and as knowledge changes, so so do these recommendations. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really important. And so it, right now there's a research plan Right. The United States Preventive Services Task Force, you can go on their website and there they document um, every step of the way of the process to get to the next the new recommendation statement. And right now they're at the research plan stage and there are opportunities as the um, process unveils itself. There are opportunities for public comment along the way. And so if you feel very passionate about this, please (laughs) submit comments, because we had over 800 pages of comments for that last um, for that last recommendation statement. Well, I'm going I'm to put my comment in to include women who are having sex with men who refuse to use a condom. How's that? Um, all right. Moving on. In 2019, your task force came out with uh, a new recommendation to help identify women who have a uh, BRCA mutation. So why is it so important that we identify women that have a BRCA mutation? Because women with BRCA mutations have an extremely high risk above the general population for for breast, ovarian, fallopian tube, and uh, peritoneal cancer. Um, so it's really important that that these women who are at high risk, who have either a personal history of cancer or a family history, um, seek genetic testing or get referred for genetic testing. You know, and I think a lot of women get into this mindset of, well, I'd rather not know when in fact, no, you'd rather would know. It's, you know, you can always slay the monster you see coming. You can't slay the monster you don't see coming. And there's a lot of things that women can do to prevent and for early detection, which, of course, is is going to be their best bet. But we're not going to talk about that today. I really just want to talk about um, about the recommendations that you came out with, because you identify some very specific public health uh, guidelines for who should be tested for a BRCA mutation. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, I mean, we recommended um, when we gave it a B grade and, and basically A and B grades, we expect um, uh, all Obamacare insurance plans to actually cover as the floor, not the ceiling, but the floor. So those A and B letters are really important. Um, and so we recommended that primary care clinicians assess women with a personal or family history of breast, ovarian, tubal or peritoneal cancer or who have an ancestry associated with breast, uh, um, like cancer susceptibility, like BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene mutations. And we really um, wanted to, we wanted primary care clinicians to either use an appropriate brief familial risk assessment tool, like a brief screening tool. Um, and then if it's positive to refer them to genetic counseling. Um, and if indicated after genetics counseling, we ask that they, re, um, refer, get genetics testing as well. Yeah. Okay. So now again, just cause I'm in a challenging kind of mood, you know, when we, we say, okay, well, if in a perfect world, if that happened, then certainly we would, um, identify women, especially who are of Eastern European Jewish descent or who have a first degree relative with breast or ovarian cancer. But very often it's women who don't know their heritage or black women that are assumed to be off the hook when it comes to this kind of stuff. And a lot of people say, this is ridiculous. Too many people are getting missed. Too many people are not getting identified. Why not have universal screening? Why not just screen every single person in the United States, regardless of their background or their what they think is their family history? You know, sister one says grandma died of uterine cancer. Sister two says, oh, no, it was breast cancer. You know, people don't know this stuff. So why not just screen everybody? I'm going to, you know, there's a lot of people that don't get, I mean, what is it? The statistics only 20% of people who have a BRCA mutation know it. I just made that up, but I know it's low. It's something like that, right? Okay. So why not screen? We're missing them. We are missing them. This is about public health. Why don't we screen every single person? Because of capacity, because of cost, although the recommendations for USPSTF do not um, consider cost um, at all. Um, that's a rule. And, uh, you know, again, I think there are the data, the state of the science, and, and there are large studies that are underway, and, and including the all of us study. So there are data um, that may evolve this recommendation. But at the time in 2019, the state of this, the data were that it, the recommendation was to screen people who were at risk um, and uh, given family history, personal history, et cetera. Hey, can I ask you to take off your hat for a second, your task force cat, and just be Dr. Simon for a second? And if you had, it's like sometimes when I interview medical students for, for medical school, you know, pre-med students, and I'll say, okay, someone just gave you a million dollars or a hundred million dollars to use however you want for public health. What would you do with it? And what would your answer be when it came to uh, bracket testing? Would you test everybody then if money was no object? Um, no, probably not. Because again, there are harms of, of testing. There are harms of, of yes. testing. There's fear. There's it. It can trigger some people. Um, it just and and you'll get a lot of negatives. Uh, and it, you know, again, I, I think there's 
there's a balance here. Um, and so I, are you already not. regretting this, this podcast? I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, again, I, I'm jaded, uh, I guess, cause I have served on the task force for five years and now I'm on the community preventive services task force. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's a whole different ball game. <laughs> All right. I'll, well, okay, we'll move on. We'll move on. Because I think this next one is something that we are going to be in total agreement on when it comes to health equity and urinary incontinence. Um, so you authored a paper which was titled um, Applying a Health Equity Lens to Urinary Incontinence, which, as you and I know, affects way too many people in this country. And I'm so tired of diapers and normalizing incontinence instead of saying, let's let's treat incontinence. But we are looking at what at least 50 percent of adult women in this country have involuntary loss of urine at some point in their life. And the impact is far greater than just being, you know, an inconvenience. In the episode I just did a couple of weeks ago on bone health, I talked about the number of fractures in women who have osteoporosis from dashing to the bathroom in the middle of the night because of their bladder issues. So um, short of that, what are some of the downstream effects of incontinence? Why is it such a, a an important public health issue? And then I want you to talk about the the inequity. Yeah, incontinence is a huge issue that is completely under understudied, under addressed clinically, and no one talks about it. It's 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 very taboo. Other than you and me, we talk about it all the time. Right, but it's very taboo, especially within certain racial, ethnic, and cultural groups. And and you know, who wants to talk about leaking or you know or total loss of continence? Um, so those are really important things to address because there's issues on just paying for pads there and and underwear and and just living activities of going through activities of daily living and living your life can be completely impeded and impacted by incontinence. Right. And, you know, um, even though your paper was on urinary incontinence, I think it's really important that we also give fair time to fecal incontinence, to stool incontinence, because if you talk about taboo topics and, and certainly urinary incontinence is, is high on the list, but um, being incontinent of stool is even higher and women are so shamed about it that they certainly don't talk about it even with their doctors while they might, you know, reluctantly confess to talking about their bladder problems. And even with the proliferation of diaper commercials and this and that, no one ever mentions the the issue of, of women who have involuntary loss of stool. And um, just this morning before we started this, I was doing an interview with someone for the Today Show about something, and, and we were talking about recurrent urinary tract infections. And she said, is that still a taboo topic? And I said, no, but incontinence is. How come we're not talking about that? And so it's it's a huge issue, not only because it does create a problem because no one's talking about it. Yeah, and it impacts your life in so many different ways, including your sex life. Right. Oh. Right. Oh. If, you, if you think you're going to pee on your partner when you have an orgasm that is going to kill the mood, I mean, just saying, not to mention poop on your partner, you know, it's just not one of those things that is, uh, and again, people are not talking about it. Okay, so talk about how is this a public health issue? Talk about the equity, because um, we didn't talk about that in any of these other topics today. And I know that for you, this is one of your primary platforms and one of the primary areas of your involvement, which is one of the reasons I just adore you and everything you do, because you do everything through the lens of not just maybe the person you see in, in clinic, but the bigger picture. So, so talk about specifically with um, urinary incontinence and, and how this is an equity issue. 
So far and wide, um, women who are minoritized or identify as black or Latina or maybe indigenous, uh, American Indian, et cetera, um, even Asian women, just this topic, it does not come up in clinical encounters at all, right? It's not addressed. Um, and, and women in these cultural, ethnic, racial groups, um, don't feel empowered or, um, justified even or heard with respect to these potential complaints of urinary incontinence. And, and so it doesn't come up in the conversation and the clinicians aren't even bringing it up. Uh, de novo out of thin air. So um, it's a it's a real tragedy because then you've got this topic that's that actually is highly prevalent among these women um, and it's not addressed. Right. And so we just hide it. And, and it just it, it's it's unfortunate. The and, other the, thing- and, and the worst part of it is, is that women are led to believe that there is no treatment. And and that is because it's normalized. Who is it normalized? It's normalized by the diaper companies who are now selling adult diapers more than infant diapers. So why would they help women get rid of the incontinence? They just want women to buy diapers and think that this is a normal part of an aging. And quite frankly, even though, you know, we're kind of focused on midlife women, these are young women because childbirth is one of the biggest risk factors, as is being overweight. So we have a population that has excess weight that's having babies, and we have 20 and 30 year old women who are going to have a lifetime of incontinence and wearing diapers unnecessarily. And as you say, and in certain populations, even more than others. And we don't talk about it in our families or through our friends. We don't. Well, not your family. My family's strange, you know. Okay. Well, and, and through our friends, we, we don't really talk about incontinence or, or what we're doing, right? It's it, and, and there's a fancy, expensive underwear that you can buy now without having to make the diapers that are absorbable. But um, again, I, I think it's a very understudied, under, under talked about, under discussed, under addressed topic. But in addition, for people who have public insurance like Medicaid, um, the, the availability of pelvic floor therapy, which is first line, right. um, is at almost zero. That's right. And that is not fair. That no, is that is ridiculous that we have to give medication pills to try to treat this or surgery instead of going to the first line preventive therapy or help hopefully curative therapy of pelvic floor therapy. And, and that's just not fair. Yeah. And, um, and I actually have a podcast episode with Dr. Uh, Fenwa Milhouse, who's a, a, a black urogynecologist who's, who's really wonderful. And I will put that in the program notes because in that we do talk more about treatment, which is so important. Um, and then of course I have a, an episode on pelvic floor physical therapy. So we won't get into the weeds on that now because we have a new study that we're doing right now with, um, uh, actually training community health workers to deliver um, content of pelvic floor therapy uh, mm-hmm. through videos and through one-on-one teaching without a pelvic floor therapist. So can we, can we do basic principle teaching to um, women who don't have access to pelvic floor therapy to try to improve symptoms? Yeah, no, that's so important. And, and the pelvic floor PT um, that I, uh, interviewed earlier who um, she's very big on social media, which I love because she educates people, the vagina rehab doc. And she actually, that's what she does is she does these video um 
instructional videos on how to really do your own pelvic floor PT. And there are a number of devices that are, most of them are worthless that are out there. I will say that. And the JDEG is at the top of the list. I'm just kind of have to throw that out there. Um, but, but certainly there is work being done with some very innovative devices that hopefully will be covered by insurance because there is no way that there will ever be enough public floor physical therapists to meet this need. So we do have to, um, find other ways to deal with this. And I will have an entire episode on, because I know you're sitting out there saying, okay, what do we do? What do we do? I'm going to do an entire another episode going through all of the treatments um, for the different kinds of incontinence. So one of your papers, um, there are so many of them, but one of your papers that jumped out at me was about the role of the public library when it comes to public health. And, you know, I, I was that kid. I was that nerd on the bus that every Saturday I took that 20 minute ride to the closest public library and stocked up on books for the week. And I even read them at recess. And, you know, I don't know. It's amazing. I had any friends. Um, but it was an important part of my life. And I have nothing but fond memories from my public library. But I admit that right now, other than voting, um, I don't go to my public library, even though it's just a couple blocks away. And then I came across this paper about the role of the public library when it comes to public health. So tell me about that. Yeah, so public libraries or just libraries in general in general are the safest spaces to receive information and knowledge in our country and uh, it is also known through a, a research study that um, librarians are one of the most trusted professionals in our country um, more so than nurses and teachers and definitely more so than doctors <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> um, and that's sad but it's true. Um, and so I thought, well, if librarians are the most trusted professionals and uh, in our area and um, and libraries are safe spaces to receive information, given that we are currently in a syndemic of disinformation and distrust um, around science and health and all those things, especially as we come out of this the COVID pandemic, I was like, well, then we should be working with libraries to embed uh you know, preventive service information, um, information around clinical trial participation, and really trying to stamp out the myths and provide patients uh, and people their rights on what it means to participate in a clinical trial or a research study um, and all of those things. So we created a health for all um, set of modules in partnership with the libraries and in partnership with patrons of libraries in um, communities across Chicago, across socioeconomic status, across different racial ethnic minority groups. Um, and we did this iteratively and we created this health for all platform that is free and available. We also train librarians on how to use clinicaltrials.gov to give um, uh, patrons of libraries information about clinical trials um, and potentially connect them to clinical trials that they could be eligible for. Um, this is especially critical in cancer care, as we know, being on a clinical trial can actually improve your outcomes potentially in cancer care. Um, and so um, that was the thought. And then right now we're working on the preventive services aspect of can a person go to their local library and learn what preventive services they need for the, the sex at which they were assigned at birth and their age. 
And then the second step would be, could they get connected to a local clinic that um, potentially accepts their insurance? Or if they don't have insurance, could they get connected to a free clinic? Um, so that is what we do on our team with that project. I'm speechless because honestly, I consider myself to be a person who kind of keeps up with things and knows what's going on out there and is pretty good at finding resources for women who are looking for information. I didn't know anything about this. If I don't know anything about this, I have to think that most doctors don't know anything about this. And quite frankly, most people don't know about this. I think the only ones that know about it are maybe the librarians. I don't know. Well, so you said there's a platform, so I can put the link in the, you know, I can put that information in, in the program notes. But what are you doing to, to get the word out? Because this is amazing. This is phenomenal. This is exactly what we need. Not to mention, we all know that people are going to be more likely to tell the librarian that they're peeing in their pants than they will anyone else. And what can they do? No, but seriously, how do we get this information out there? Tell me what I can do to help other than this. Um, well, uh, this is a great avenue to help uh, spread the word. Uh, we've done a lot locally. Um, again, this deserves a lot more attention nationally. Uh, we've tried to do that and we'll continue to try. Uh, again, we're still in the throes of um, uh, testing and building out the preventive services one. But absolutely, we're always looking for ways in which to spread uh, the word and this information and these resources that we've built. I know some libraries are, are there's a library network, so they are starting to um, uh, leverage what we've done and build on, on it for their local needs um, as well, because every library has different um, different communities that have different needs, right? Whether you're more in a rural or suburban area, but I think as we move forward in, you know, with people using the libraries less for books, but more for other things, I think there's just so many opportunities to partner with libraries to help improve health. Thank you so much for taking this time. Thank you so much for talking with me, even though I did give you a little bit of a hard time, but mostly thank you for the work that you do and how you help women. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the work that you do, Dr. Stryker, for helping women. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. Thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. See the light.